I can't with the bail bondsman. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like you're spoiled for choice in this town. <laughs> I do think it's good to have comparison shopping. Yes, for for all your services. And Dallas is a place of comparison shopping. Yes. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> hi everyone. It is me, Victoria Stapleton, director of school and library marketing. A little frown books for young readers. I'm a consumer of bail bonds. <laughs> I do have warrants. That's why I don't like the photos. <laughs> uh, with me, this is the Little Brown School Library podcast. I would tell you it's going to get calmer. I don't think it is. Uh, <laughs> because with me today is my life partner, Libba Bray. I love you, Victoria. I love you too. Um, you know we don't. I would buy your bail bond. I know. I, I mean I that. Your bail. That is the the true sign of friendship is when you're willing to put up the bail money. <laughs> <laughs> she was with me. It couldn't have happened. <laughs> Everyone would say she was with you. It definitely. Happened. <laughs> I know. Just last week. <laughs> um, and so, uh, Liva, oh, I just performed one of my most hated verbal took. Ticks. Um, and so, <laughs> and only I love like. their last album. And, and, and only like it's in there. Very, to make very it. German. <laughs> and, and, um, so, and so, and so, and so. Libba and I are high above the freeways of Dallas, Texas. <laughs> I think we're just going to left it with Libba and I are high. Look, we're always high on life and on the That's love true. we bear for each other. That is so true that, that is true second heart inside me just uh i have known other people longer uh but i uh i like no one better and that includes myself Aww. that includes myself libba bray is the author of many wonderful groundbreaking um perplexing frustrating adorable hilarious <laughs> just ban banana nut bars grocery lists and books and books <laughs> Occasionally. Occasionally. When I make my deadline, which is never. Oh, God. Don't start, Libba. Don't start. Okay. I'm going to start in a happy place. We're not in Fort Worth. We can't go to that rodeo. <laughs> uh, her rodeo most, lives inside me. Her series with Little Brown Books for Young Readers is The Diviners, the most recent installation of which is Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. <laughs> which, almost. Almost? It's Before the Devil Breaks You. Okay, here's the thing. Mm -hmm. I keep saying before the devil breaks Because there's it. something... Oh, you do. Because it's a movie. One of these is no, a movie. And one the of these is a book. Dead is a movie. That's right, before but the then I keep getting you. them confused because they're both really super awesome titles. <laughs> they both have devil in them. That's all And they both could be the title of this book. So the book is before... <laughs> before the... <laughs> Before the devil takes you dancing. No, that's not it. Before that was the, the last devil. one. Before, <laughs> Before the, the devil, devil breaks, breaks you. you. Yes. And we only say it like that, too. We never, it's never like, yes. before the devil breaks you. Say it with us. Before the devil breaks you. Yes. Uh, this is sort of like, um, it's sort of indescribable. It's the X-Files uh, meets Upton Sinclair. Oh, man. Lovely. Uh, meets uh, Stud Turkle's baby. This is the best description ever. Uh, uh, mixed in a jazz age bathtub gin martini. With a half-calf half, half, half calf foam. 
um, don't go all Williamsburg on me with that half calf foam thing. Full calf all the time. Full calf all day. Full calf all day. All night. That was, however, a beautiful description. I think it's. I'm glad that we've committed it to some form. And we're going to post it on the interweb, so it's going to live forever. Um, Everybody's going to say it. So this, I mean, this is a really interesting book. I mean, technically, it's the story of a small town girl, Evie, who go, who's you know bigger than the big city, although maybe bigger than her small town, but maybe not quite as big as she thinks she is. Word. Yeah, her britches are a little bit tighter than she thought, Um, and. She ends up in a far larger story that we one might write off as some sort of science fictional or fantasy thing, except you have done quite a bit of realism in the research of this book with the Red Scare, uh, the Jazz Age, women newly voting, economic inequality, immigration issues, etc. And the book is stuffed with what I like to call non-standard non-standard <laughs> personalities stamped on my uh, I think that was my my confirmation name non-standard mm-hmm. but see I think that's a, it's interesting because this is this is an also an era when we're really looking at the standardization of factory work and office work and the time management studies and really the standardization of American life and the real explosion of mass culture and you have packed and what peop- what the government and society does to enforce mass culture and standardization. And you've packed this book with refuseniks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. What's the attraction of writing these characters that are so very difficult? Especially Evie, who in any age is a deliciously difficult woman. She is a deliciously difficult woman, and thank you. Um, I, I mean, I think part of it is, and this is something that we're seeing right now, is that we are seeing movements started by deliciously difficult women. Um, And one of the things that I'm always attracted to when I'm writing, and I was talking about this on the panel the other day, is is, is systems. Mm -hmm. The systems that enforce a certain kind of... Decorum. Decorum is one, Mm -hmm. absolutely. I mean, I I think that, you know, I'm thinking about it across the board, Mm -hmm. um, across across gender, but... um, but certainly for women, that's very specific. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, it's it's decorum. It is it's it's dress. It's ornamentation. It is uh, everything. And I think that for um, I think that we're in a moment right now, especially with young people, mm-hmm. where we are seeing the refuse mix. Mm-hmm. We're saying when they're saying like, no, the system is broken. We are not. It's not that we are going to try to figure out how to take our place and and work. Um, within this system, mm-hmm. the system itself is fundamentally broken and we have to absolutely look at it with hard truth. And then we have to break it apart and then we have to forge something new. And I'm always kind of interested in that, in these systems that either elevate certain people or oppress certain people, that marginalize certain people. Mm-hmm. And I think that for, um, you know, it's incredible to see somebody like Emma Gonzalez right yeah. now. I mean, she is, she is, uh, she is everything that we would ever want in, in a character. And of course, she is a very real human being. Mm-hmm. And to think about the way that she is difficult, and I'm using air quotes there, mm-hmm. um, even in uh, when she was um, at the, at the uh, gun reform rally, yeah. 
just those six minutes of silence and how uncomfortable it made everyone for a woman to stand there and hold those six minutes of silence and refuse, refuse to cede. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you look at someone also like Marley Diaz. Mm-hmm. On the Absolutely. surface, that seems like a very, you know, acceptable or uplifting or system-friendly sort of activism in getting black girls to read, read, read. But that's so revolutionary in our society. And it can be difficult because what are these girls reading? Is it always acceptable to us? Are we willing to let them read what they want? So the difficulty comes in many different forms, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What is the heart of Evie? I mean, what is that? I just, I, and I'm saying that incorrectly, but there is like, there is like that itch, that seed, that rusty nail inside each person that everything else grows around or orients that character. What is her rusty nail? It's, in a way, the first thing that came up for me is uh, complication yeah. and contradiction. And I think that is one of the things that we do deny women yeah. is to have that, or I say, full Roy G. Biv. Yeah. And uh, we like our sorting hat. We allow men to be all kinds of things. You know, we allow them to have their, to have their anger and to, to be assholes sometimes, but we don't allow that of women. And, um, you know, so we get into the whole discussion of likable women, uh, which drives me nuts. As an unlikable woman, I, I both resent the whole marginaliz- marginalization of unlikable women, and yet I cherish it because if I were more acceptable, more people would talk to me. <laughs> well, Not that I don't love you all, listeners. <laughs> it's, it's interesting it's because attention. I, I grew up, of course, in a, in a Southern culture in which... Mm-hmm. Hospitality and being likable mm-hmm. is uh, is almost a religious fervor. It is inculcated, mm-hmm. um, and so of course I, I it's in my DNA. So for me, some of my struggle has been about uh, figuring out when that is organic, and when that is performative. Yeah, and when I simply want to say, you know what? No, actually, I disagree. Or um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to have my anger. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to voice an opinion that goes against the flow. Um, and that has been a bit of a struggle. I think one of the things that I love about Evie mm-hmm. is that she's like some of the women that I was drawn to growing up who are just like, damn the torpedoes. And I think I was damn the torpedoes, but in a way that was quieter. You know, mm-hmm. That was a little more like, okay, I'm going to do it in my, in my own quiet way. And I think that with somebody like um, like Evie, she is just like, no, I'm, I, she's a bit reckless. Uh, she is, um, and she's very ambitious. And that is a thing that we don't allow mm-hmm. in girls. It always has to be a sort of, it has to be couched in a like, oh, don't look at me or it's okay. And I, I kind of, it's, it's bracing, but mm-hmm. I actually, it's, it's bracing because it, it's not something that I'm used to, but I love when I hear women say like, yep, I'm going to be up here and I'm going to enjoy every minute of it. Yeah. I was talking to Sherry Winston, another one of our authors last year. She is the author of the president of the whole fifth and sixth grade series of books. And our conversation focused on depictions of 
ambition in girls as young as middle graders, that 8 to 12 set. And she's writing a middle grade series that features a very ambitious African-American girl. Uh, and the tensions of depicting that, that it's not so much the character or the girls, it's the adults who are passing books mm. to those readers. And what is that adult discomfort and how do we think about dealing with that? in and giving and connecting these books with readers it's different at the teen level because they're they're hopefully buying earning their own money and buying these books but there's still that gatekeeper aspect of of acceptability of these books and have you run into uh, alternative visions of evie in the <laughs> reviewing and how do you think that affects it or or do you think the teens are short-circuiting that and that system and finding their own their own reading pleasure um, that is, I, I'm tempted to say yes across the board, mm -hmm. um, and I, I do, however, think that it's fascinating to read reviews um, in which, and, and largely by female readers, in which they will take a female character to task for being unlikable. And it reveals, I mean, it's, it's, it's frustrating, mm -hmm. it's infuriating. It is, but it's also a little, you know, it's kind of gets me in the guts because it reveals so much of the way that we, that this misogyny is internalized. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the things that I always like to talk about in terms of gendering books, mm -hmm. boy book, girl book. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. Because when you say to someone, and I'm talking now about gatekeeping, when you say to somebody, uh, when you say to a class, well, this is a girl book, but you might enjoy it. You are passing a judgment, and that judgment is so much larger than you may realize because what it is saying to that boy or those boys is you do not have to be concerned with this experience because it is about the feminine, mm -hmm. and therefore it is unimportant. And therefore, uh, the lives of 51% of the population are not important, and that has real-world consequences. Or that it's specialist or niche yeah. or or uncool somehow. And you see that dynamic replayed again when you're looking at African-American literature Absolutely. or other literature dealing with people of color or gay lesbian literature. I mean, that just keeps getting replicated in a very subtle way over and over again. I think the unlikability issue is also connected to the current discussion about relatability. I don't find that character relatable. Yeah, that's a, that's a real loaded word, isn't it? That is so loaded. <laughs> that's so loaded. And I wonder if teens are better as readers are more unencumbered by some of our older biases and maybe they're they're not as concerned with relatability that they are willing to be more experimental, more exploratory in in their reading and experiences. I definitely one of the things that I have found absolutely you know, glorious about this next generation is that I do think that they think outside the constructs, mm -hmm. that they are subverting the paradigms, and that they are, um, you know, they are thinking differently about gender, about race, about sexuality, and um, they're really not, they are exploding those systems. Mm -hmm. I. What I find fascinating about Evie is that her mind does not break, despite the continuously 
deepening rabbit hole of complexity that her initial choices lead her into. <laughs> it's sort of like a nautilus shell of bananas. <laughs> that would be a great... That'd be, I would like that on my tombstone. <laughs> well, I don't plan on ever dying, so... I'll chisel it, although well, I will miss you when we're gone, life partner. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory, though. A, a blaze of glory. Sorry the bail bondsman. the bail. But it is true that, you know, it, a lot of times we see on young adult literature, um, you know, it's a set of choices because the theme of young adult literature is now teens have the power to make the world in their image. And what will they do with that power? I mean, that is the hallmark. I mean, that's people ask me, how do you know it's YA? I'm like, oh, teens are teens are uh, exploding their moral virginity. So their political virginity. It's not all about sex. Sex is usually the least interesting part about it. But in usually it's, that, it's just that one choice. Evie keeps having to make choices, sort of like life. Yeah. Once you keep making your choices, you have to keep making your choices, which is why adult literature is the literature of permanent regret. <laughs> But Evie, you depict Evie continuing on this of like the consequence of her first choice is this. The consequences of these next choices and how she continues to navigate. And I admire how her willingness to have complexity in her mind allows her uh, to navigate. <laughs> Where did the rest of that come from? <laughs> what rusty nail is in your soul that you thought some of that up? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm a bunch of rusty nails, just like Jesus. Oh, oh, oh. Three, two, one. Really? Do you want to take that one out? Because <laughs> I will. Um, you know, thinking about... Uh, think about those complexities and I think about another difficult woman who I happen to love who's my mother uh -huh. and she said to me one time I remember I was I had done something I had made some really dodgy choice and I regretted it and I don't I... regret the footage <laughs> oh not that no. okay. I don't regret that okay. at all <laughs> um, but I remember I thought oh man my mom is going to blast me and I was ready for it. And she said, well, she said, you learned something. Mm -hmm. She said, people talk about situational ethics and they kind of, kind of casting aspersions on you, like, oh, situational ethics. She said, if you are a thinking person, all ethics are situational. You have to basically make real-time yeah. decisions and figure out how your, um, your moral universe how that how that choice fits in with your moral universe, and sometimes you make mistakes. And I just thought that it was sort of a brilliant response to a teenager who had screwed up. And because what she was saying was, yeah, you've got to think. Um, but that also that this stuff was not black and white. That it was there was always that there was a lot of that the, what she was trying to teach me about was nuance. Yeah. And, and about complexities. And that sometimes you were going to have to figure out how you brought your particular North Star to that. Yeah. 
Um, let me just mix a whole bunch of metaphors because I'm not sufficiently caffeinated. I Look, it's like not it. black and white. It's a it's a many layered cake. <laughs> you know, love is a many splendored thing, and yes. sometimes a many splintered thing. Yes. And sometimes it's just delicious. It's hard oh, to know, isn't it? It is hard to know. Oh, well. But I'm curious about your question, about if there was something in particular that you were thinking of with that rusty nail. That um... I find this, I mean, I love the series. I do. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> and, I'm intellectual, and I'm intellectually challenged by the series. I'm emotionally drained by the series. I'm intellectually challenged by the series. I am... It is a true thing about me that there are some things that I just really, oh God, he's killing the first book. What? That when hit that first killing. Oh. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, Barry Liga is a, <clears throat> a wonderful husband and father. He is. We don't know anything about that one time in Reno. <laughs> We don't. We don't. Just to watch him die. But I read I Hunt Killers. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I always wonder what is in the capacity to see that in your own... Do you have any red... It's not that you're sick and weird on the inside. Or it could just be that or sick this and weird is, on the inside. Well, yes. But, but what I'm trying to get at is that you also, as an author, just as easy Evie is... Easy Evie. Oh, Lord. Sorry. <laughs> just as Evie is going forward, exploring the consequences, sometimes with fear, sometimes without fear, but still going forward, for you as a writer, you're not pulling back from the narrative consequences of what you've set up. And some of this is very dark. Yes. You know, how do you decide that you're going to do some of this, such as that murder in the first book? Oh. Uh. Or anything involving the greater. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like there's a there's a multi-pronged answer yeah. here. And part of that is that of course I was a horror reader growing up. Okay. And I love horror. Yeah. And I do think that horror um you know, I think that people tend to think of horror as being um I think I suppose it can be gratuitous or yeah. exploitative or 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 um Eli Roth Eli Roth. <laughs> it, it, and, you know, and look, it can be gross. Yeah. And I'm not really into that kind of horror. Yeah. I'm into the kind of horror that has human stakes because yeah. it's always a it's always a metaphor. Yeah. And um, and so for me, it's always about the emotional stakes of the world. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, we are in we are in some pretty dark times right now. Mm -hmm. And having looked at American history, I think. I think the thing about horror is that it, it takes away denial. And that is so much of what American history mm -hmm. is built on, is denial. I mean, to borrow from Hamilton, who lives or dies who tells your story, and whoever it is who tells the story is usually the conqueror. Yeah. And so when you have, uh, when we don't look at slavery, when we don't look at the horrors of slavery, one of the, I have a friend who um, teaches museum and exhibition design. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to get this entirely right, but and I'm sorry that I can't re remember the name of the man who helped put together an exhibit for the Baltimore, um, for like the Baltimore History Museum or mm -hmm. something like that. And uh, so he said, okay, you have to give me free reign. And um, he's African-American. 
and he went in, and so it would say, there would be an exhibit that would say, um, uh, silversmithing, uh, American silversmithing, um, you know, or 18, what, you know, 1830, yeah. 1800 to 1830. Yeah. And he would have, like, goblets and, and um, silverware and things like that next to shackles. And it was the idea, you know, guess, this is the full breadth. This is what you yeah. have to see. And so to me, it's always, I think about um, one of my guiding principles when I write is a quote from Akira Kurosawa, um, the great Japanese filmmaker. And he said, being an artist means learning never to avert your eyes. And so for me, if I wanted to do an American ghost story about American ghosts, which are our sins mm -hmm. rising up to haunt us and say, you need to look, mm -hmm. then, um, then that was my guiding principle. And it meant that I had to go to some dark places yeah. because they exist and there's no deniability. And it's for teens who still are not afraid to look rather than gatekeepers who may be squeamish Yes, about that. Yes, and I think that, and look, we can all get into that thing of this is something that, uh, and I think also especially something that women are encouraged to do, which is, I, I always make the joke about, you know, being a Southerner where it's like if somebody murders somebody in front of you, you're basically supposed to say like, well, I guess we'll just have tea in the veranda why don't y'all come on back here and, you know, <laughs> than, like you just shot somebody dead you know it's it's the way that we are also supposed to to make nice yeah. because we feel um, or we have been told that that's how that is our purpose that we that we make things better by doing that but sometimes you don't no you don't i mean I have a similar experience. I mean, I was raised uh, indifferently and inconsistently as a Mormon. And if there is a culture of deference to be had in the land, <laughs> that would be the one. <laughs> and uh, there's all these articles of faith. No, I can't remember them all. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the end one is something about we believe in lovely, praiseworthy, good report and being these things. And it, and it translates often into a culture of pink. A culture of pretty. Mm. You know, sorry for the Mormon listeners out there, but Eli Lilly is often referred to as the house that Mormon women built for a reason. And it's in, it's always been interesting to me to think about that in the context of this. Uh, that is a history-loving group, certain forms of history. And confronting my own thinking about how I deal with books for young readers, I have to reach into myself and think about my own biases that I come up with. If I read a book that I don't super love, I go back into my own history and thinking about, well, am I running up against one of these triggers? Is it running up against the deference thing that I really try hard to navigate correctly? Is it coming up against that uh, niceness thing? that And don't laugh out there. <laughs> that still I sometimes have to, to think about. But also confronting my own family history, my mother was very uh, interested in family history and we go to places. and. So as I think about conversations that we have currently about who gets to tell stories, winners and losers in telling stories, and that whole part of erasure and the idea of privilege and success uh, and how that plays out in different demographic groups, uh, I was not raised a wealthy person. As my mother always said, you know, there was always a roof over your head. 
of some sort. So I understand being poor in America, and that's a very hard job. But there is a house in Windsor, Connecticut, and it is, I believe it is the Filer House, and it is the house of one of my ancestors that he received for killing the most Native Americans in King Philip's War. And I have to think about, you know, we, we like to wash our hands. There is no part of my DNA that arrived on this continent after 1850. All parts of my family have been oppressing people mm -hmm. <laughs> on this continent since the 1630s. And, you know, not quite the Mayflower, but close. And, and thinking about, I have to think about that history, how I got here, and use that in my trajectory of presenting books to readers. I know that's a long-winded thing and seems in self-indulgent listeners, but I do have to think about this. As I take The Diviners, a difficult book that is sort of catnip to me in some ways, why is it catnip to me? Am I reinforcing my own choices? Or a book that I don't like, they do exist, and we have published them, and think about why I don't like this, but I still have a responsibility to that book to present to the reader. It's an interesting cultural thing of our enterprise of doing things for young readers and the difficulties of it, especially when we're dealing with difficult material, which I find unnecessarily pejorative, right? Now I'm talking too much. No, you're not. And I think that, see, that's, there you go. There's a female thing like, oh, yeah. I'm talking too much. It's like, no, actually, you were making a very valid point about how easy it is for us to say, you know, I think about this sometimes, um, you know, we're talking about being here for, for forever and oppressing people, yeah. how easy it is to say, uh, you know, well, you guys, um, I'm talking about, like, if, if you're talking to other, other white people, like, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't do this or you do this rather than we. And it's like, oh, no, you can't cut yourself out of that. We're all part of white supremacy. Yeah. You know, we're white in America. We're part of white supremacy. Even if... It doesn't mean that we're not all trying to dismantle that, but that involves a great deal of soul-searching. It does, but there's even in cases of books where I'm not sympathetic, maybe to the worldview. No, I, I, I And yes, I and this is code for a more conservative book. I admit this, but it's still my responsibility. There are those readers. They want quality literature. Um, I was, The book I didn't like earlier was not speaking of that in particular, but there are things, you know, we all... We like to think of ourselves as inclusive and giving and sharing, and, and, and I find in this job I'm constantly having to rethink how I approach so that I can do the best service. And I wonder if you as a writer are also, how do you rethink your biases and confront your own um, limitations to best serve your readers? That is why it takes so long to write a book and to especially write these books is because, sure, there are the plot mechanics. Uh, there are the, you know, there are the eight characters that have to have their lives put in and, and you know, to explore those emotional lives and this, that, and the other. But it's the thinking. Yeah. It is the thinking. And I, I always feel that what happens is you, you put down your conscious choices. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those are plot choices. Like, so-and-so, um, you know, finds a ghost and therefore has to run away. Okay. But what you're looking for, what you're sifting through always, are your unconscious choices, mm. the biases that you have. Um, and so it's, it's always, to me, I, I always feel completely different. Well, I feel very different on the other side of a book yeah. because I'm changed. 
Yeah. And it forces me to confront those things and like, okay, well, look, this is, um, you know, I grew up in a religious household and my parents were pretty liberal, but, um, but you know, I grew up with certain dogma mm -hmm. and that is something that I always have to think about um, because I am, though some might be shocked to hear it, actually a person of faith. And, uh, but that is how I define that is my own personal yeah. thing. So sometimes when I am looking at religious systems, let's say, mm -hmm. as we were just talking about being Mormon, um, I have to stop and say, you know, like, well, all right, I may not believe this, mm -hmm. but um, do I have a duty to present this person in full mm -hmm. who's, uh, who's perhaps whose religious views do not align with mine and to show and to let that person speak for him or herself. Mm -hmm. um, I think about Sarah Snow, uh, who is the evangelist oh, in the piece. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's a hard one. That's a very hard one because on the one hand, she's villainous. And on the other hand, uh, she is also a victim of uh, a society which does not allow her to have her full ambition. And so it gets warped and twisted and she cannot see that she is perhaps misusing. Um, she's misusing her faith and she's also um, not able to acknowledge just how ambitious yeah. she is. Yeah. It, it becomes a certain, it becomes that thing. And that's, again, we get back to systems. It becomes that way in which we project and, and we um, try to force the control of others um, in order to make things square with whatever is going on inside. And so, you know, the, the fact that she looks at Evie and other diviners is like, that's the problem rather than exploring some of that internal business. Yeah. I think I just went off on a tangent. I'm not sure. No, but I think question. it's a, but a tangent, schmangent. I mean, it is interesting to me, though, because you as the author have the ultimate control. Yes. Of those characters and the response with great control comes great responsibility yes but thinking about these characters as they work through issues of control you're the author with control and you can and, and but then also allowing like, characters to decide and circles and circles and circles and and I think uh, that is particularly appropriate because we are looking at a very circular freeway right now we are looking at a very certain. It's kind of soothing. It's a little like it is soothing. a kind of sonic volume. But I have now selected my bail bondsman, and I think it's time for us to go. Oh, man. Do I get to pick? Do I get to guess? I picked the guy with the neon, but I almost went with that guy, because look at that building. Right? He must really engage a lot of our type of felonies. <laughs> Let's go commit a crime. We'll see you next time, listeners.